that's how we see our brand. That's how we see like even these wellness recommendations that we're pairing with people, like ultimately giving people choice and like this self-efficacy to really like think and have like autonomy over what they want to do and how they want to approach their well-being, especially like when they're on the go and really like, again, like reimagining the way that they're living and like being and thriving and being in community with each other. Welcome to Entrepreneur Struggle, where each week we talk to founders and freelancers about their journey, creating and scaling up their business. My name is Chris Colbert, and I'm the founder and CEO of the media company DCP Entertainment, as well as the video and podcast recording space, Podstream Studios Times Square. These conversations have been recorded with a live audience on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And we've brought you the best moments from our conversation, discussing the various struggles that founders have had to face. If you'd like to be part of the live conversations where we allow the audience to participate, please follow me on Instagram at Chris Colbert Report. In this conversation, I'm talking to Siri Chalara. She's the co-founder of the digital health and wellness brand called Juice. And in this conversation, we talk about the personal health journey that led to the creation of the company, the positives and negatives of working with family, and the challenges she's had to face as an entrepreneur with multiple marginalized identities. But we start with the story that led to Juice. First off, thank you so much for having me here. Um, Normally, I am usually the one on the other side of these sorts of conversations because we have a podcast too. So it's a really big privilege to be featured here and to speak to all of you about myself and what we're doing. Um, You know, I'm first gen, so my parents immigrated from India in the 90s. So they've been here for nearly 30 years. And I feel like the one thing that they always tried to emphasize for us was like, if you go and get educated, that is one way of breaking through like systemic oppression and for one way for you to like mobilize upward. And of course, like that was, you know, said to us and and they meant, meant well, you know, of course, but being in America and looking the way that I, I, I do, it's, it's not just going to go get an education and, you know, having this upward sort of mobility, but you know, my sister and I, that's what we did stereotypically. Like she went to go study medicine and I studied engineering. There was no, yeah, yeah, totally stereotypical. Like there was no pressure though. Like my parents were like, you know, do what makes you happy. Like you're not starting from ground zero. Like we are that first generation. So like try to do what makes you happy. And so, you know, I wanted to go out and save the world, save the environment. I had this like really bright eyed and bushy tailed sort of experience around wanting to help climate change and do all these things. But as I was kind of in that process, I just felt like there was so much again, like beyond my control, what I could actually contribute. And so I was thinking like realistic ways of actually like improving climate change or working in general in public health. And so I was working for state government. I was doing local government. I was doing city government. I was working a little bit internationally. I was doing data science work. I was doing a lot of different aspects of like public health and climate change work. And kind of in that journey, I was also personally facing a lot of health problems. Like from childhood, I was a pretty like sickly kid. Everything I ate like made me sick. I was like constantly anxious. I was like having a lot of issues. And I think just being a woman, being brown and having immigrant parents, it wasn't necessarily the easiest to get the right type of healthcare or to even like know what to do. And so while I was like building this career around public health and around climate change and energy and environmental work, I was trying to navigate the healthcare system and figure out like why it was so hard and so challenging for me to figure out like what was wrong with me. And so I was working at a data science job and around that time was when a lot of my like diagnoses, I found out that I had Lyme disease kind of came to an apex. 
And I wasn't really having a good time in my work. You know, uh, I was like the only female engineer on my team, um, the only woman of color. And as I was having these health problems, I was like, look, like, I feel like a lot of people who look like me experience challenging in healthcare. And then I feel like a lot of people who also look like me and maybe have some of my shared identities have a lot of issues with tech. So can we possibly create a new paradigm where we're like building a healthy and inclusive technology ecosystem and at the same time possibly affect healthcare as well? So it was like this two pronged approach of like, it's not only that I believe that healthcare can be made to be more inclusive, but I also believe that we can make technology overall just a better place for all of us to work in and collaborate together win. So yeah, it, it sounds like you saw the problem within what you were dealing with. And now it's like, okay, how can I help myself? But also how can I affect others that may be going through this now or may go through, through you know, through something similar in the future? So with that in mind, did you just work from your own experiences or did you reach out to others who may look like you or have similar marginalized identities to find out their experiences? Yeah. So I think like, so as a co-founder team, so I have two other co-founders, one of them happens to be my sister. And so as a co-founder team, we had come up with this idea, like randomly in 2018, we were grabbing beers at a brewery and we're just talking about like, so we were, you know, we were coming from all over the place. So my sister at that time was in medical school. We were raised in Connecticut. So Connecticut was kind of like a common place. At that time, I was also like coming back from the, from the Middle East where I was doing some research. I'd taken some time off of school. And our third co-founder who was a friend was coming from like Philadelphia. So all of us were kind of gathering in Connecticut and we were talking about like, hey, like I need a haircut, but I can't find anyone who cuts curly hair. <laughs> it's so hard when you have textured hair to find people yeah. who are gonna like, not just like cut it like this or straighten it and cut it, right? So initially the problem was like, all right, how do I go about finding someone who's going to cut curly hair? And then our other co-founder was like, all right, like I actually need a massage. Like, how do I do that too? And so when we were like, it was an initial question of like, how do we find these services and how do we go about booking them? And we were like, all right, like the first place to go is like Google. And then you go down Google, then you go down to Yelp and you go like down all of these different rabbit holes to like figure out like these services. But then when you actually go about booking and paying, you have to like go through all of this like hogwash again to select your service, like do all this, do all the stuff. And so we just felt like the process of like having a, finding like a problem that you have and then actually going to like getting to the point of actually being able to book and go about doing that sort of like health service or whatever it is, whether wellness or beauty, there's like so much time and so much like work involved in that, that at the end of it, you just like, you're like, ah, like, fuck it. I'm just going to not do anything. You know what I mean? Like it's taking me too long. I'm not trying to like go look at all these five-star reviews. Like I'm just, I don't need a haircut today. I don't need a massage. I'm good. You know? So I guess, you know, like it's, it was just that as a co-founder team, we had personally experienced these pain points. And then we kind of tabled the idea. We're like, all right, like, you know what? Like we don't have the capacity to do anything about this. And then the pandemic started rolling around around 2020 and my sister. So one of my co-founders, of course, she was in the, she was a first responder in the emergency rooms. And so like around that time, we started noticing that like so many of us millennials and Gen Zs had been moving around and just shifting the way that we were like going about our lives. You know, people weren't living where they worked. This like concept of like remote culture was like really becoming a big thing. But there was a massive friction point in how people actually went about accessing care. Emergency rooms were backed up. So were urgent cares. So people were like doing telehealth. People are doing all kinds of weird things to like figure out what to do if they couldn't go to the doctor. Yeah. And so this initial problem that we had in 2018 actually became like a massive problem, like or an opportunity in 2020, because that was like sort of this inflection point that opened up the stage for people to be like, all right, 
if I, if like what I'm experiencing is clearly not urgent enough to go to the urgent care or to the hospital, like what am I supposed to do right now? Or like, what am I supposed to do if I'm like, my work is in New York, but I'm like home in Connecticut visiting my parents for the weekend. And I like need to need to take care of myself, you know? So I think like it went from this personal problem to something that we like noticed an opportunity in, in 2020 and then 2020 into 2021, like, you know, of course my sister was in medical school, like me and my other co-founder were starting to just talk to a lot of people then and start to do a lot of research. And we talked to businesses who were holistic health clinics. We talked to so many different stakeholders in insurance and technology. And we're like, all right, is there actually a need for this? Or again, is this something that we're just seeing a problem in? And so I think through that personal experience, seeing the right opportunity, and then just talking to a lot of people like validated the sort of direction that we were heading in with the product. So you founded the company Juice with your sister. And I know before we got started, you told me you listened to the episode I did with my sister, where we discussed some of like the pitfalls that can come from working with family. So for you, like what has become some of those benefits and maybe challenges of working with and even co-founding a company with your sister? Yeah. So I feel like it's it's amazing. And at the same time, it's, it's a challenge, like you said. Right. And I think the parts of it that are amazing is that like, we are so mentally connected that when like some weird shit is going down, we like look at each other and we're like, we both know what we're thinking. So like, for instance, if we've like been in a meeting, like with an investor who's straight up just like being racist or like saying something that's sexist, we kind of have that sort of like mutual understanding of like, okay, here's how we're going to handle this. And it like was never a situation in which I didn't feel like I couldn't trust her. It's like that so, so much trust exists in these co-founder relationships, you know? So I felt like having like a co-founder that was a family member, it was just so much innate trust in our process and what we were doing. And I think like, it's also that we have so many shared experiences around being first gen and also being on opposite sides of the coin that I feel like it kind of, our skill sets, like, and our, and our sort of dynamics as being like family members really gelled really well with each other. And I think like points that are like, you know, where there are conflicts, I think is like, because when you're working with a family member, it's so close that sometimes you like, don't keep your boundaries. Well, you know what I mean? You're like having a personal conversation, like through text message. And then you're like, Hey, like, did you hear about this from this guy or something like that? You know? And she's like, dude, it's literally 9 PM. Like, why are you talking to me about work right now? Like, if you want to talk to me about work, like, why don't we do it this way? You know? And so I feel like that was one of the biggest things and the biggest challenges that we had to kind of work through. Like, when do we have our work hats on? When do we have like our personal hats on? And also like we have different hats too. She's, she's a doctor and I'm like also someone who's a patient, you know, it's like, so when is she also having her doctor cap on or when, when am I like someone who maybe needs like some medical support, that type of thing, you know? So I think like, I think it's on the whole created an environment where we can really be open and frank and honest and have like a trustworthy conversation in an environment with each other. And at the same time, I think we're constantly navigating how to like still protect ourselves and our time and our boundaries with each other so that we can keep those relationships like really positive and healthy. How have you figured out some of that communication stuff? Because I know for me, like I don't have family working with me at the company, but my mother is an investor. So we can easily flip from a conversation about what's going on with the family to how are things going? And I don't know if how things are going is an ask for an update about the company or, you know, all the details there, or if it's just something I can brag about on and connect on that personal level. So how have you managed that? So one thing that I feel like is important to share is that that I'm actually on the autism spectrum. So um, it's called ASD these days, but I guess like I, where I sit is like Asperger's. And so I think like communication has always been a challenge and a gift and a lot of sort of, um, you know, sort of 
something that I've really had to work on over, over the, over the years. And so, um, one thing that's really interesting in the autism community, that things that like folks who are, who are kind of in this space, like encourage is to use tags to like kind of dictate the tone or the sort of like messaging around something. So there's like certain like tags, there's just like, it's like a hash and then it's like a J for joking. And so like, what I realized though, is that there are certain things that are kind of encouraged in the autism or ASD community that all of us can really rely on, like whether we're neurotypical or neurodiverse. So like, similarly to that, if it's like, I think it's just being as clear as possible. It's like, Hey, like, can we talk about work right now? And what hat are you wearing at the moment? And do you have capacity for this? You know? And like, if it's like, if it's, if it's something that if it's 9 PM and you need to send like a message to someone who's your family member, sometimes I've been like hashtag, like ser- like hashtag S for serious. So like, this is something that like needs attention. If it's like something quick and I'm like, Hey, can I, can I get on a phone call with you? Cause I really need to talk about this. It's kind of, you know, making sure that, um, the communication is really, really clear. And the intention is like really clear so that the other person is like hyper aware to like what you need in that moment and what you're asking for as well. And I think that also gets back to like this place of boundary setting, because I think the more clear you are with your communication around your needs and the more clear you are about like in what way you're also saying it, because so much gets lost in like text messages and emails and even like verbal conversations sometimes, I think like the better you can go about just like creating healthy boundaries and relationships too. So I think for me, it's just like been really important to just be explicit, you know, you're my family member, but right now I need this from you right now. And it's serious and like ASAP, you know? And that slash that you're putting in, that comes before the message, right? Like you're basically keying them in on what part of their brain they'll need for the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I do that with family members. I do that with friends. I do that with like a lot of different folks. And I've, uh, and I come, like I say, I introduce it by saying like, Hey, like, you know, this is, I'm on the autism spectrum and this is kind of like a tool that I've like found that sometimes helps me kind of keep communication really clear with people. Like would you be comfortable if, if I shared what this was about and you could decide if like you wanted to partake in this too. I love it. I'm definitely stealing that. Yeah, please. And I also like how you frame that by asking, what do you have the capacity for? Because at times with my team members or even family that will ask me questions and I'm just like mentally burned out. Like even if it's just a simple question, my brain just can't function and goes down into like shutdown mode, which then can make me seem dismissive or even maybe even angry. Yeah. Just hashtag N. No. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But being as intentional with it, as you just said, like, I think that lowers the barrier to not have to feel like I have to answer it in that moment. And by saying you don't have the capacity for it, it's not that I can't or don't want to answer you. It's just that in this particular moment, I don't internally have what I need to give you a clear response. And I think the thing is, is like, you know, brain scans have shown us over the years that all of us are a little bit neurodivergent in our own ways. All of our brains are a little bit different. And I think like that just translates to like all of our experiences, all of our communication, all of our needs also being a little bit different. And I feel like we all kind of attach like the same patterns, even when we don't necessarily get the same outcomes. So if we want like a different outcome, maybe it means that we like change the way that we kind of set our pattern and the way that we like approach things, you know? So I feel like it's, it's been really positive for me to have this sort of interaction with people where I'm just like very explicit and clear. And then I think like it creates also just like that also returns to you. Cause then people start like to speak to you that way, where they're like, Hey, like, can I, can I bother you about this? Like, is this okay? Like, this is how serious I am. This is the level of urgency. And it like really cuts down on time, like helps your mental health and just like lets people know like how you're feeling and like what you need and like what the next move is. Yeah. You also mentioned, and if you watch any of the video from this episode, you can see that you are part of multiple marginalized groups as a woman, 
as a person of color, as someone from the disabled community. We haven't even touched on you being part of the LGBTQ plus community. And it's funny because you literally are the embodiment of all those underrepresented groups that I mentioned whenever anybody asked me about DCP Entertainment. But you were mentioning earlier that back doing engineering and doing other work before becoming a CEO, you experienced mm-hmm. negative incidents due to those marginalized identities. Now moving over, have you faced some of those you know, same challenges with your identity? And how did you work through those? So yeah, I almost think that it's a little bit harder jumping into the startup and venture space because I think there's like a level of like, if you say something, it's like, all right, what's the evidence? And like, I don't believe you. You know, I think like there there is that challenge when you're young and you have these like marginalized identities because, so for instance, like I always bring up this sort of paradigm to kind of show what I feel like the difference is in like the venture and startup space. So for instance, like, as I've mentioned, like so many times, one of my co-founders is a doctor, but we have gone into like these investor rooms or like these stakeholder meetings where she says something as a physician and like some like white dude who has like a communications degree from like not even the caliber of the schools that she's gone to feels like he has like the authority to be like, well, like that's not how medicine works. And like, this is like the way that blood pressure medication is like put out. So like, how are you going to like put that into like an EMR and then make like, a? it's like stuff that doesn't even make sense, you know? So that's the example that I show of like someone who's very credentialed and like knows what they're doing. And in an environment, like where we're going to these meetings, people are like, well, I don't believe you. And it's like, well, I have a degree. It's like, I don't believe you. You know, you need to show me this other evidence or you need to do this or you need to do that. And I think like part of that process is good, right? Like when you're seeking invest in, in, you know, funds, when you're trying to get like funded and you maybe don't have a lot of credibility behind your, your first time founder, I can understand the robustness of some of this process, but I think like it's undeniable that like systemic oppression like is seeping throughout like the startup and entrepreneurial space, you know, like HBS did a study, I think in like 2016 that showed that when investors speak to men, they speak, they speak about ventures in the sense of opportunity, but when they speak to women, they speak about it in terms of risk. And so that is, that is like contributing to why women get only less than 2% of the funding. And then if you look at trans women or black women or Asian women or any intersection of that, it's of course way less. And so I think like, yeah, for sure, I've experienced a lot of like issues in, in the startup and entrepreneurial space and I think this was definitely, you know, shit that I experienced in all aspects of like my, my degrees, getting my degree, um, my work experience. And I think like what I've really, um, what I've really had to do is kind of take a look inside because I think like sometimes you don't even realize that a lot of this oppression is also rooted in you because of the systems that we are raised in. Right. Yeah. So like I could have a lot of internalized oppression within me. Like I could be racist. I could be sexist. I could be all of these things inside. And I think it's taking a look inside and seeing what sort of work do I have to do so that I then don't have to like propagate this harm on other people. And I can actually do a job of like recognizing like what is harm and what is, what is white supremacy and what is actually like the mission that's like that I'm working towards with my business. So the first thing that like I did and like my, my company did is that we got some training and we started aligning with groups that were actually teaching us this, teaching us about anti-racism, teaching us about accountability in the workplace, teaching us about change management and what that actually looks like helping us put together a harm and reparation policy. And that group is called MMG and their CEO McKenzie is now our official advisor. And so that was the first thing that we did. We're like, all right, we might be like Indian American. We might be like first gen. We might have all these identities, but it doesn't mean that we can't pull this bullshit on other people the way that we have been harmed. 
And I think the thing after that is to like really develop like a sort of toolkit for how you manage this type of harm or how you manage this type of oppression. So like once you've been dealt this harm, like what do you do after to kind of like rest and repair and to like tether yourself to your mission again? You know, so I think uh, I was speaking to a founder who gave me like some really good tips on this, which I've started to do is anytime like you experience any type of hate or someone's saying something really negative to you, I think it's like you can process it. And then I think you can also like coach yourself in the moment. So like there's on my phone, I have a folder that's like all of the wins. You know what I mean? Everything that I've done that's been like sick, like, or anything that's happened that's been positive. I kind of go back in that folder and remind myself, it's like, you know what? Like maybe this thing went badly. Maybe someone treated you badly. Maybe like, you know, someone was racist or sexist towards you, but like here's ways in which you've like broke past that and actually like did something that impacted someone in a positive way. And I think like reminding yourself, like when all of this shit is going on on the outside, who you are and what your values are and why you're doing what you're doing, I think like can literally like move mountains. And like that, I feel like is, you know, what I've experienced, what we've experienced as a team and how we've tried to move past it. That makes a lot of sense. And I think what you mentioned is also good just as a general practice in terms of keeping a list of accolades to fall back on, because I think a lot of times as entrepreneurs, and I'm definitely projecting here, we're so focused on what hasn't worked, what needs to be improved yeah. and what are the next things that we're going to do. We don't necessarily celebrate the wins or even if we do, it's just for an hour or maybe a day, but we quickly move on to that next problem, that next thing that needs yeah. to be solved. So I think having that list is important and can be self-reassuring and almost like preventative. Totally. Care. And like our advisor McKenzie says all the time, like when you're faced with something, ask yourself, like, what is this trying to distract me from? You know, and like a lot of the work that we do, like, especially in healthcare is like dismantling white supremacy and systems of oppression. So they always say to me, like, you know, like, what is this actually trying to distract you from? Like, what is the actual problem here? Like, is it, is someone just trying to, it's kind of like in, in startups or venture. It's like, we shouldn't be competing with each other for funds, right? We should realize that there's an abundance and it's like women of color are forced to like compete with each other to get this funding when really it's about like the wealth is already there and figuring out how to dist distribute it to people who look like us, you know? So I think it's like, it's not that there's less funding. So that's just a distraction. It's like different systems are at play to make sure that like, we don't get the opportunities that maybe we, we should, you know, it's, you can be value driven and mission-based and also be someone who makes money. You know what I mean? Like so many millennials and Gen Z's especially care about social issues. Like I'm on that cusp of being a millennial and Gen Z. And like, we care about inclusivity. We care about rallying for issues that affect us because we have literally been given like the shitstorm of things that we now have to fix to like save the planet and to move forward, you know? And so I think that if companies like don't realize that like having inclusive practices or getting trained, if they don't think that that's important, then I think they're shutting themselves off to a whole demographic that has so much spending power now. Yeah. And I think it's also that it has worked in our favor in the sense of like, we have these values, we have this training, we have these like sort of um, values that we hold ourselves to. And like, it makes investors, it makes like customers, it makes people then actually want to support us because they see that we are like putting in that work, you know? And I think it's also like, I think it, it's one way to also say like, if a company our size so small can spend the money and take the time to do something like this, some big corporation doesn't need to have like their one black person, like run the DEI and training forever. You know what I mean? It's like, if like we can, yeah, yeah. It's like, we can do it like at our size, like literally any corporation beyond that should be able to like find a budget and like, should be able to find resources to, to like really prioritize this work. Yep. 
And you mentioned earlier a situation where your sister as a doctor in the room with these white male investors, she was being told that she doesn't know what she's talking about medically, even though the man had nowhere near her qualifications. So in Mm -hmm. those kind of situations, or maybe in that specific situation, how do you address that in the moment? Or like, do you even address it at all? Yeah, great question. So um, in the past, I wouldn't. I would kind of just like, kind of freeze up and like not be sure of what to do. Cause I think I was really scared of saying anything. And I was really scared about the repercussions because the industry is like very small. Like, as I'm sure you have experienced yourself, like if you meet one founder, it's almost as if that founder knows this other founder and that founder knows some investor who then knows you too. And so the community is really small. And I think when you have more of a marginalized identity, you're always afraid of like, okay, who am I going to tick off? And then how are they then going to like come after me and my business and maybe talk shit about me and make it harder for me to succeed, you know? And so I think in the beginning, I didn't say anything, but like there was this one instance where like we were pitching to a pretty big venture fund and um, they just like kept interrupting and hurling questions, hurling questions, hurling questions. And I literally was like, excuse me, folks, like we are going to stop this right now. (laughs) So like, I like was literally like, I was off camera. I was like gripping myself. I was like, girl, you got to do this else. Like they're going to like, they're going to keep walking over you. And I just like put my foot down. I was like, excuse me, like, we're not going to do this anymore you keep interrupting and speaking over us and you're being incredibly disrespectful. And like, we have given you our time. So we expect the same from you. And I feel like that's like, that was the first time that I really stepped into my power and I said something and they like listened. And then they like were cowering because I feel like in a lot of like, I'm sorry to say this, like, you know, for folks who are white and in power, it's like they can give it out. But then when you give it back to them as a person of color or minority, they can't always take it to their face. You know, it's kind of just like, oh, you wait, you spoke back to me like what you actually said something back to me, you know? And so like as a co-founder team, like me, Nidhi, like Sid, like we we are being more firm about like what is okay and what isn't. And in the moment, it's just like calling it out, being like, hey, like that made me uncomfortable. Or like, hey, like, why did you do that? Hey, could you explain your rationale there? You know, like the other day I was like pitching like an angel investor who recorded my pitch, you know, without my consent, like things like that, you know, that it's like really common in this sort of space. So I think calling out that behavior and being like, hey, that was really inappropriate. Or like, hey, like, please don't ask for my like personal phone number. Like if you're not my friend or you know what I mean? So I think calling out that behavior as it is in a way that's like respectful and courteous, but honors your own boundary is like the only way thing that you can do unless you like really are in a place where people are just then walking over you, you know? Yeah. You know, living within those marginalized identities, I know we were talking about it in terms of working with investors, but I know personally that as a person of color, I'm sometimes agonizing over social media and the marketing side of things where I feel like we have to be extra careful about everything we say, whether it's about our own community or not. And at the same time, like me, you're a mission-driven company trying to make an impact. So Is there a fear that you have around how you're using your voice publicly, especially within social media and marketing spaces? Yeah. So most recently, like, of course, we we all experienced and heard about the overturn of Roe. Right. And so that was something like really major for us when we were thinking about, like, should we say something or not? Should we say something or not? Because I think there are a lot of like social issues that come up and like, I feel like companies are then in this place where they're like, oh, I'm going to be woke by like talking about, I'm going to be like, yes, Black Lives Matter, Blackout Tuesday, like all of this stuff, you know? And it's like, all right, like you can say that, but what are you actually doing? Right. And so, exactly. So when it came to Roe, like I, and anything, anytime we put like anything out that's like medical or health or wellness related, I always like check in with Nidhi 
because, you know, as a doctor and as someone who's really providing us a lot of that medical backbone, we need to make sure that the stuff that we're putting out is like medically accurate and is also put out in a way that's like also sensitive to the sorts of ways that people might be interacting with the news, interacting with things that are going on. We don't want to deplete someone's like mental wellness or make them feel worse by our content or make them feel worse in a way of like, why is this brand now like capitalizing on this like terrible thing that's happening, you know? So I think like we, for Roe, especially we had to like, think about like, what do we actually want to do? And how do we actually want to say this? Because like the ability for everyone to have access to healthcare is something that like is so personally tied to our mission and our values. So like we came out like Roe happened and then we came out like really, really strong and put out like an equity pledge, which basically said that every single stakeholder that we work with needs to basically believe in this like value of diversity, equity, and inclusivity. And we opened it up to like, founders, technologists, um, operators, and people in venture. And so that to us wasn't something that we were doing to like, I don't know, look cool or to have like clout. It was more so that like, if we want to actually make healthcare more inclusive, we need to like, we need to actually take a stance on like what this means, you know? And so I think for us, it's been about like, what are things that are in our control? What are things that like are in our values? And what are things that are actually, you know, um, how can we actually address things in a way that are also sensitive? And so I think like thinking about all of those things is like, I don't think there's any pattern or rule book. I think we kind of like go off of like just how we feel, contextualize that in like a way of if it's appropriate to say something and then figure out like the best way to say it in like, and in, in really being thoughtful about what it is that we're doing, you know? And I think like in the beginning, we were just like so afraid of being more vocal, like whether it was like in an investment room, whether it was like with customers that were, you know, when we were like, you know, trying to figure out what type of customer we wanted to actually provide our product to on the business side, because we're a marketplace, there were some interactions that were like really negative and really racist too, you know? And so I think like a lot of, and we had to be so careful, as you said, like when you're black or brown or person of color or underrepresented, it's like every single word that you said is like, that you say is put under a microscope and examined and then like like ripped apart and then thrown back in your face of like, this is now how I'm going to like put you down and make it such that you can't like move out of this. And so I feel like we were so like bent up on all of that, that it was almost like paralyzing. And we're like, all right, like, what can we do as a company? And then I think, you know, the more that I like tried to figure out like how we could be true to ourselves and the more that I was vocal and like spoke about these issues, I feel like then we started connecting with like the people that actually like really believed and like saw what we were doing, you know? So I think there's like, power in like laying low and like really focusing like inwards and like maybe in a more stealth sort of place. I think like that, that has some power. And then there's also a lot of power in just like saying, you know what, like screw it. I'm just going to be me because whether I'm not, I am me. These are still the systems in place. And like, this is it. I got to just like be true to myself else. I like can't make a difference here. Well, and for a mission driven company like yourself, it's even more important, especially as you were saying with millennials and Gen Z, it's a major priority for them that companies that they support will be authentic and truly making an impact out there in the world. Gen Z will like find the source and like literally like, I don't know, just really, you know, expose brands and people that are like just talking shit, you know, and like literally not doing anything. And especially, yeah, they will, (laughs) they will rip you apart, you know, and deservedly, you know, like it's, if they're going to spend their dollars, like Gen Z is very intense about the way that, you know, like they, they spend their funds. I was reading the stat that like 14% of Gen Z's are now putting their, like, or Gen Z's are putting 14% of their, like, uh, saving their like income into, into savings and like really being good about like 
you know, diversifying the way that they're spending and like allocating a lot of their funds to small businesses. Cause like, I guess no one trusts the government anymore. So <laughs> there's a lot of like, you know, people talk about like, oh, this generation is so bad or like they, they don't do things, but it's like, I feel like Gen Z is like the generation's going to save, save everybody. You know what I mean? Or at least like really make us reconcile as a society with like what we've really done, you know? Earlier, we talked about some of the challenges around raising money. So when you come up against those no's, whether you feel like the decisions are fair or maybe they're tied to how they perceived you based on your marginalized identities, how do you push through that and continue to stay motivated? So I feel like for me personally, like I feel like I'm, I try to be really self-aware again of my own limitations as someone who's on the autism spectrum. So I feel like there might be one way that I'm perceiving things, but then I've like started to build kind of a supportive community of people that I can really rely on to help me navigate these situations. So for instance, if I get like a, like a big piece of feedback from an investor, that's like basically sandwiching a no, I kind of take it to like my community members and be like, Hey, like, is this legit feedback or is this just like hog, like bullshit, you know? And so in situations like that, they're like, okay, like this is actually like bullshit. And this is probably because they don't believe that you can do this, you know? Like, I I think like I've, we've been coached so much and have been put through so many different like programs and accelerators that I feel like the no's kind of roll off. So I think it's like, for me, I like read or, or look at a no and I'm like, all right, is the reason because there's something actually wrong with like what we're doing or approach or they experience some sort of risk there, or are they, is the language just being boiled down to like, we know that this is a problem that you're trying to solve, but we don't think you're the team to do it. And if it's like, we don't think you're the team to do it, then we go back and analyze like, okay, what is it? Like, what is it about the team? Is it that we're really young and maybe don't have a lot of experience? Are you like, that's something that we can't help. Like, I can't help that. Is it that maybe like we, I don't know. Like, so I feel like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, but, but then I think about, then when we go back, it's like, all right, we have like one co-founder who literally worked at like 0.72 asset management, like built financial, like tools, you know, using software. We have one who's literally a physician. And then we have one who's like a chemical engineer, like, and a patient who's like worked on high level projects too. So it's like, I, I think like you take this feedback and you kind of filter it and be like, all right, like what are, what is, what are they actually saying here? And then kind of figuring out for yourself, like, is this viable feedback? Or again, is this just something that like, they are just, they just don't believe in you. And I think the thing is, it's like, even if people don't like believe in you at that moment, those opinions can change when they start seeing those financial returns, right? So as soon as they start seeing that you're making money or you're actually executing on what they thought that like you couldn't do, then they come back and it's like, okay, like actually now I see this and like, I I might still not believe in you or might not think that you can do this, but like, because I'm seeing the money, like that's what I kind of care about. So I think it's just like, you know, just figuring out for yourself, like, again, where your boundaries are, like what you sense and kind of like believing in yourself, but also surrounding yourself with enough of a community to help you, like to help guide you through these like tricky situations too. I'm talking a big game. I mean, like back in the day, like I would, I would get some of these emails. I'd be like, Oh my God, like the business is going to fail. Like we can't do this. And like, Hey, like we're here and we're growing and things are okay. You know? So I think like that resilience is really a muscle, you know, how, how have, how has that been in your experience? For me, it's a lot of what you said with having that community there. And I'm fortunate to have a lot of family and friends that have lived these entrepreneurial lives where, you know, one of the most valuable things has been the exact reason why I started this show, which is understanding how others have struggled with these same things. And 
even that knowledge can be really helpful to keep you going. Yeah. There's like an, an investor that who, who's kind of like a mentor uh, for us. And he was like, all right, like for, if like for a white male company, it takes them like a hundred no's to get like one. Yes. For you guys, it's going to take you like 300. So he always like checks in. He's like, all right, how far are you down? Like where, where, where are you in like the, the sort of like segmenting? Are you a third of the, the way there are two thirds? Like, where is your, you know what I mean? So it's kind of just like, it's, it's interesting. And like all of this community that like I've re- we've really built around us is all for gen and immigrant and people of color. And so like, I think it's, it's like also the shared experiences and the feelings around that, you know, it's kind of like the scarcity mindset, the sort of like, you don't want to disappoint your parents and all of the stuff and like really feeds into the sort of like support systems and community that we pride provide for each other, you know? So we're really able to be like, all right, man, like maybe this didn't work out, but it doesn't mean that like you ups, like that you like, (laughs) you know, like lost your parents dream or something like that. Just like relax. It's going to, it's going to be just fine. You know? Earlier, I teased that we talk a little bit about this term modern nomad, which I understand has a particular definition and meaning for your company, Juice. So what's a modern nomad? So modern nomad for us is kind of like a person who's kind of in this like Gen Z to millennial demographic. And it's really modeled after like the what we saw from the pandemic, right? Like the pandemic caused these like two major trends, great migration, great resignation. The people most affected by that were millennials and Gen Z's. And so kind of spurring out of this like change in the day-to-day mobility experienced by these people, we're like, how do we actually like capture who this market is and who they are? And so that's how we kind of like spun out this term of a modern nomad, someone who's kind of in this demographic, who has a little bit of disposable income, who someone who's been maybe working for a few years, like, so not teenagers, right. But like, kind of like 20, 25, like, and maybe like 45, like 50, sort of like in that age range. And then kind of like also capturing the sort of like the modern aspect, which is that you can live in one place, your work can be in one place, your family can be somewhere else. You could be traveling like either across the country or even from borough to borough. Like if I were to, like I live in Brooklyn, if I need healthcare, like I'm still Googling on my phone if I'm in Manhattan, it's not like I know the borough like necessarily better than I know Brooklyn. Like, and so I think just capturing the the newness around the way that people are now living as opposed to maybe like five to 10 years ago, I think that's, that's how we tried to capture like this kind of shift in the trend. And I think like, and one thing to address here is that we had actually a few customers like earlier um, in our journey that were like, Hey, like, I feel like this term modern nomad is like making your brand out to be something that encourages gentrification because you're saying that like, it's only for this group that is like traveling and moving. And we don't want to support a brand where like people are like, you're, you're encouraging people to like move to places where like gentrification is also such a huge problem. And that goes back to show that like, again, Gen Z's and like millennials, we, we care so much about like every single thing that like a brand is really saying. And so I feel like we needed to really clarify that like even the word nomad has like had really negative and like racist connotations in the past. But part of us like talking about it in this way of like someone who's really reimagining what their day-to-day mobility looks like is kind of like reclaiming what that means for like kind of this place that we are in, like in history, you know? Before we wrap up here, I want to hear about some of those wins that you've experienced recently. Yeah. So um, let's see. So I actually was accepted into Launch House. Um, Launch House is a huge like uh, community that, you know, they were, they recently raised their series A with Andreessen Horowitz. Um, They basically create like a community for founders um, across like the world to kind of 
uh, kind of build their startups in an actual house together, kind of like a hack house, like, you know, what existed with like Airbnb and a lot of these companies. So they launched their second ever female cohort and I was accepted. So, um, that is like a really big win, uh, for us. Um, a few weeks ago, we processed our first transaction with a New York city business. Um, and the charge was like over a thousand dollars, you know, cause folks were buying like a, a huge package of services. Um, for, for people who are listening, who don't know, we're like a B2B2C marketplace. So we work with businesses, we give them like a business software to run their day to day. And then we work with our customers to actually help them book and pay for these services and are eventually going to be re- you know, providing these sort of wellness recommendations and to see that someone like transacted such a high, like cost item like that was like insane for us. You know what I mean? And so I think it was just a win for us to see that, like this product that we had literally built from scratch in our hands, like our baby was like, you know, now supporting businesses like in Brooklyn and in the Bronx, you know, and like that growth that we've been experiencing, like people who are really tied to our mission and our values as business owners, like choosing to be like, Hey, like I'm stepping away from this, like huge platform, like Square, like people, like we have customers who have come from like Square who are now using Juice to manage their business. And like, no matter what happens in this business, like no matter what happens in Juice, like, you know, that is like a huge, huge, huge win for, for us as a team, for us as engineers, technologists. And we're really proud of that. Yeah. You should be really proud of that to be included with a company that's at their level. Like that's huge. That's a huge accomplishment. And even with the money and those other wins, like these things many times are like a snowball effect. They just pile on to each other. So yeah, congratulations. That's just incredible. And I also think one of your wins has been your successful podcast. So tell us a little bit about that too. Yeah. So our podcast is called Chai Not Chai Latte. And it started off as like a social media project because me and my sister, again, like pre-juice, we're like, all right, like where are the stories for like, again, first gen immigrant founders, like where are the, where are the stories, like our experiences, you know? And like, that was, I think at the advent of the concept of a chai latte, like you would go to Starbucks and be like, Oh, I'd, I want a chai latte, but it's like in any East Asian or Asian language, like chai literally just means like tea it, it's cha or it's chai. And it just translates to tea. So if you're saying, you're saying like tea, tea, <laughs> when you're saying like a, like an iced chai latte or a chai tea latte, like it's tea, tea latte, you know, it doesn't make sense, you know? And so we just thought, all right, like, why don't we just address this on its head and make like a joke out of it? So that's why we named like this project chai, not chai latte. And we specifically try to focus on underrepresented folks, like whether they're in the early stages of, of building their businesses or folks who have actually like exited or like are, have more of like a global presence. And so one like really, really exciting, like uh guest for us was the team from India rising. Um, who I'll give a shout out to like they're, you know, building a media platform for brown ballers everywhere. They just had their debut as a basketball team on the basketball tournament on ESPN. They didn't, they didn't win because they played literally, literally the team that won the million dollars last year, which is a Syracuse team. So I was like, how could they have like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was literally their first, their first game. So they didn't make it, but I think it was really cool to be able to like talk to, talk to folks who are working at the NBA and are, you know, like part of the, this brand who are trying to create like a platform for just Indian origin basketball players, which is like never a concept that I ever heard about. Like I, the only Asian representation I ever knew about was like Jeremy Lin and like, (laughs) you know, like beyond that, I'd never seen like a Brown baller. So having people like that who are really change, like who are big change makers and trying to be disruptive at whatever scale I think has like, it's crazy to me looking back that we've had some of these guests on the show on like such a small podcast, you know, but I think it's just a a testament to the fact that these stories exist and they just like, they deserve to be 
you know, elevated and have a platform to, to really speak about that. So it started off from this like social media Instagram project. And as we were like building juice, I said to Nidhi, I was like, dude, like everyone has podcasts for when they're successful. They're like, Oh, how I built this by like Guy Raz. It's like all of us in the entrepreneur space. I feel like I've heard about that podcast. And it's like when people have exited or they're super successful, but I said to her, like, what about like now, what about like the people now who are doing stuff? And so you know, we, we just saw that need and we're like, all right, let's just give it a try and see what happens. Thank you, Siri Chalara, for joining us on Entrepreneur Struggle. And thank you for listening. You can follow Siri's company, Juice, on Instagram at getyourjuice.app and on Twitter at getyourjuiceapp. You can also go to our show notes for a link to their website. Thank you to my producers, Heather Johnson and Ryan Woodhall. And until next episode, stay safe, and healthy because the struggle is real.